Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly look at the world of Scottish politics. I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Holyrood, and on this edition of the podcast, we'll bring you an interview with Willie Rennie. Leader of the Lib Dem since 2011, Rennie announced earlier this month that he was standing down, although he'll continue as an MSP. He speaks to Mandy Rhodes about working more closely with Labour to defeat what he calls the twin nationalisms of the SNP and the Tories, and he tells us what he really thinks of both Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish Greens. But before that, I'm joined by journalists Jack Thompson and Louise Wilson to discuss what's been happening over the past few days. And Louise, the First Minister has found herself embroiled in a row over vaccine take-up. Yeah, so yesterday was meant to be the day by which um, all 40 to 49-year-olds were given the second dose of the vaccine. Um, But the daily figures published yesterday suggested only about three quarters were. I mean, that's still pretty good but given that the government had promised a hundred percent um it's you know quite far off that um but then uh after various journalists and the scottish tories had pointed this out um the first minister went on twitter to kind of complain that that was inaccurate that they'd missed their target um it seems what actually happened was she'd misspoken in her statement and she meant to say that um that age group would be offered the second dose rather than given but of course um, political opponents will make hay with whatever they can. Yeah I mean she never actually used the word target did did she but the way she sort of talked about milestones key milestones in parliament it almost made it look like she was making the assumption that 100% of people within each age group would come forward. Yeah, like the target was to have, um, I think, all the adult population at least offered the first dose of the vaccine um, by, I think, last week or something. Um, But yeah, when she talked about milestones and that being important for the 9th of August, which, as we know, is when we're meant to see even further easing of restrictions, it kind of makes people wonder, well, does that mean that's at risk because that milestone, as it were, wasn't met? And Jack, the the number of uh, COVID cases does appear to be on uh, somewhat of a downward trend. Uh, And it's becoming clear that that the spike earlier in the summer may have uh, had something to do with the Euro 2020 football championship. Yeah, and I think that link to the Euros is perhaps something that won't surprise a lot of people because naturally there's going to be a higher risk of transmission when people congregate for events. And, you know, obviously this was a particularly high-profile event um, given the circumstances. Um, you know, also we, we had some data published by Public Health Scotland at the end of June, um, and I'm sure you'll both remember, it kind of had some interesting findings um, where their analysis sort of found that between, I think it was the 11th and the 28th of June, 1,991 people from Scotland with a confirmed COVID case had attended one or more Euro 2020 events, so a match, a fan zone, you know, something like that. And that was during their infectious period. So, you know, we're talking about people who are unknowingly kind of transmitting their infection to others. Um, And there was also, you know, various other kind of statistics in that, um, but also it it mentioned that, you know, nearly two thirds of that tally had travelled to London with almost 400 attending the Scotland-England match at Wembley. So I don't think it will come as a shock to people that, you know, cases seem to rise during the Euros. And I would imagine officials will probably looking to learn from that experience with the the prospect of, you know, more meaningful numbers being seen at events in the future um, as restrictions kind of gradually continue to ease. You know, whether it's concerts or, or sporting events, you know, uh, I think they'll, you know, certainly mitigation is going to be key, uh, making sure that they've got, you know, the right measures in place to kind of um, prevent a spread at, you know, these events. Um, but yeah, we're seeing, you know, a drop in cases now, which is obviously promising. And with the vaccination programme, you know, continuing at a, 
a decent pace. Um, I don't think the picture looks too bad at the moment. I don't know what you guys think. Well, did, I was just going to ask, do you think the, um, the the cases that we were, are now being linked to Euro 2020, does that have implications for the startup of the new domestic football season? Because we're only a couple of weeks away, I think, or maybe even just a week away until fans are back in, in stadiums for the first time. I mean, are they saying that... Do you think they're saying that the, the cases were, were linked to the matches themselves or is it more likely to be from people getting together in fan zones and that kind of thing? I think it can be just as much people, um, from, you know, from my reading of the data, it can be just as much people going to fan zones or going, you know, going to the pub in groups of three or four to watch games. Um, so I don't know if it will necessarily have an effect on or a direct effect in that sense on, you know, kind of capacity numbers um, at football matches and things like that. But it may just be a case that, you know, obviously we've seen some limited numbers recently in football matches. Um, and I know that the the plans are certainly to resume to full capacity, you know, as if everything goes to plan quite shortly. So it, it, what I think will be more, I think they'll be just keeping an eye on the, the state of the pandemic in Scotland more generally before they 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 kind of look at um, you know full capacity events. I don't know if it will be directly, um, you know, if they'll be focusing too much of a specific emphasis on on what we saw at Euro twenty twenty. But I could be wrong. Yeah, um, Louise, we've got an interview coming up with uh, Willie Rennie on this edition of the podcast. First things first, what is your favourite Willie Rennie photo call? And there are many. <laughs> Without a doubt, it has to be the amorous pigs of 2016. But um, more recently, I suppose, his posing with uh, giant objects was sort of the theme of the past, of the election just gone. And I enjoyed that as well. So, And, and do you think, um, because he does talk about those those uh, photo calls in the, in the podcast and says that he, how much he enjoyed them, but do you think those sort of photo calls actually served him well as a, as a politician and served the Lib Dems well as a party? That's always the question, is it, isn't it? I mean, you think, why would they bother doing it if it didn't uh, do anything? And I suppose in one sense, you know, it gets that picture on the front pages. Um, so it certainly means that, the, that people know who Willie Rennie is, um, which isn't always a given. We've seen with other opposition leaders that not everyone necessarily knows who they are. Um, indeed, that was Richard Leonard's big problem back when he was a Scottish Labour mm-hmm. leader. Um, but in terms of then whether that translates into votes, it doesn't seem to have done that. Um, obviously, um, they were uh, the smallest party in the Scottish Parliament last Parliament. They're still that, and they've actually dropped one of their MSPs from last time around. So there's mm-hmm. now only four of them. Anyway, what do you think of the admission that the Lib Dems and Labour need to work more closely together? Um, I think it's interesting. Of course, um, that collaboration between the, those two parties isn't new in Scotland. The early days of devolution, they were the two parties that were in um, in a coalition government. So it's maybe not that surprising. I do wonder what they'd get out of it. Um, you know, even combining their two groups of MSPs together, that still only puts them at 26, which still would leave them in third place behind the Scottish Conservatives. Mm. Um, and that's still, you know, really small compared to compared to what the SNP have. So I don't know how much that would deliver in terms of the things that they want to deliver. They really need to work with the other parties to really do anything on that. Um, I think for Labour, there's maybe less of a reason to want to do that than the Lib Dems, at least with the Lib Dems, it maybe might get them a, a few more front pages and that kind of thing. Um, although having said that, if um, Anasawa wants to continue to play into his grown-up politics, working together uh, to, to get things done, then I suppose maybe working with the Lib Dems would really help paint that picture. Yeah, I mean, Jack, we, we all seem to be assuming that uh, Alex Cole Hamilton will be the next leader of the, of the Lib Dems um, in Scotland. Do you think, um, I mean, he's obviously got his work out for him. Do, do you think, what do you think, um, how do you think he starts to rebuild the party? And I mean, do you think we'll, we'll see them uh, potentially go to even more extreme lengths with their photo calls? Or is that some uh, a tactic that they might ditch? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, obviously it's not set in stone, but I think most people are acknowledging that we're, we're probably looking at Alex Cole Hamilton as, a, as the favourite to replace Willie Rennie. Um, and if it was to be him, I should say for anyone concerned about photo calls disappearing, 
Um, Cole Hamilton might want to take on the mantle. Um, Holyrood has an excellent politicians and their plates with the Lib Dem MSP, where he's showing off his pizza making skills involving the use of a blowtorch. So, um, nice. I don't know what that you know what, if if that would be the route to go down for photo calls. Um, but you know you never know what may happen there. Um, but before I before I stray too far from the point. Um, obviously, he's been the, the party's health spokesman. He's he's young, he's, he's energetic, so I can certainly see why he might want to take on the role. Um, but in terms of a, a party rebuild, it's, it's a difficult one because I think they need to show voters um, in Scotland why they can be relevant, you know, and particularly beyond the constituency seats that they already have. So if I was to take a guess myself at how they do that, I think they just need to perhaps do the basics well, you know, perform well when given the chance at, at FMQs, which I thought was was one of Rennie's strengths. Um, you know, whoever is the leader should continue to raise the matters which are important to them. So they've done it in the past with mental health issues or NHS waiting time. So I, th- I think small steps and then they can maybe see, if, you know, what momentum they can build from that. We, we now know that Alex Cole Hamilton has put his name forward um, and that wasn't a great surprise, was it? No, it's yeah, like you said, it's not the biggest surprise kind of in the world that Alex Cole Hamilton, Alex Cole Hamilton has officially kind of thrown his hat into the ring to replace Willie Rennie um, as leader of the Scottish Liberal, De- Liberal Democrats. Uh, he com- confirmed this in a, a campaign video which had the classic inspirational music and that serious walk to the camera. Um, but of course, you know, he raised some quite uh, important issues in the video. Um, like child poverty, inequality, the staffing of hospitals and the education system. And he, he talked about offering um, the people of Scotland hope. Um, so, and obviously we now know that, the, you know, the nominations close on the 20th of August. So there, I mean, well, there's time for a surprise. I don't think anyone is expecting that. Um, but I guess in terms of his own background, you know, uh, Cole Hamilton's been a, an MSP since 2016. He's the party's health spokesman. Um, he's young. He's he's energetic. So I can certainly see why he wants to take on the role, um, you know, and and kind of follow on from from where Rennie's left off. Yeah, and Louise, you were at uh, you were at Cole Hamilton's campaign launch this morning in a, a rather dreek Edinburgh. Um, what what did he have to say, particularly about working with uh, the Labour Party? Indeed, it was very dreary, and it was on the beach as well, which I think made it a bit uh, a bit more strange. But but there we are. Um, yeah, so he was asked at that um, whether the party would be keen to work with Labour a bit more, um, and he spoke a lot about the sort of great personal friendship that he had with Anasawa. Now he stopped short of saying it'd be anything more formal than just sort of on an issue by issue basis. Um, but then when asked whether there would be any other person that he'd consider having that coalition with, he, uh, um, so he didn't seem to think that was likely. Um, he said um, Douglas Ross was sort of part of the problem of toxic Brit- British nationalism. Um, so he seems to be sort of quite keen to steer clear of, of working with the Conservatives. Um, as we know, you know, that's kind of what um, made the difference way back when in 2011 when they they dropped their number of MSQs quite badly and that was as a result of the coalition. And Louise, Jax Jax tells us that we've got another month to wait almost until the winner is declared. Is it likely that we'll we'll get anyone else throwing their hat into the ring? Um, It seems unlikely. um, Because of the leadership rules, they do have to be an MSP um, and with there only being four of them, one of them being the outcome leader... (laughs) It seems fairly likely. We Doesn't leave ask... a huge number of options, does it? <laughs> no, we did ask um, whether whether anyone else would likely be putting their their hat in the ring, um, but uh, party staff just sort of declined to give a proper a proper mention. Um, and Alex Hamilton himself um, said that he wasn't willing to put any of those private discussions on the record. Okay, well, it remains to be seen. Thanks very much, both. And now, Mandy Rhodes' interview with Willie Rennie. So, Willie, you're always so upbeat, so optimistic, uh, dubbed Mr Sunshine. Was there any silver lining that you could take for the party from the election in May? Um, Yes, Um, because if you looked at the results in in particular seats, we got whopping big majorities. Now, what that told me was that where we can convince people that we can win, that we're relevant 
that the voting for us would have an impact on the outcome of the election, the purpose of the election, then people would vote for us in big numbers. In fact, bigger numbers than any other party. Um, Alex Go Hamilton, myself, you know, 50 odd, 55% of the vote. So that's good. So what that shows is that where we can convince people that we can win. Now, the problem was we couldn't do that in other parts of the country. Um, so there is a route to improvement through those results, but um, it takes a different approach in order to try and achieve that. I mean, at the end of the day, you've you've got four MSPs. You were once the party that governed Scotland along with Labour. I mean, do, do you honestly feel that you can really build back bigger from where you are now? Um, yes, and I mean, let me explain why. Because I think, though, you know, we we are we are not just clinging on. Um, in our, we've got big majorities in our seats, so the issue is. How big is the Liberal Democrats in Scotland? Um, but secondly, there is a real question about what kind of country that we want. And it's the same problem that Labour have got. But we we can either carry on as we are just now with what I would call the twin nationalisms of um, the SNP and the Conservatives that I think have divided the country in a way that I just don't recognise anymore. And or we can try a progressive, what I call a progressive alternative, um, to try and build up momentum behind, you know, focusing on the issues that affect people in their daily lives rather than endless bitterness about the constitution, whether it be Brexit or whether it be uh, independence. So um, I think there is a, I think there is a real urgency now for that progressive alternative to get its act together and to convince people that it can win. And that goes back to your first question. Um, It's all about for people, is it worth it? I mean, I had lots of people during the election saying, I love what you're saying, Willie. I agree with it all. I like you. I like your candidates. But you're not going to win, so I can't vote for you. So how do you get people to move out of that mindset of being forced to vote for one extreme for fear of the other and actually say there's a bit of momentum behind an alternative? And that's why I'm you know, a strong supporter of, of giving people confidence in that progressive alternative, which is why I think we need to talk to Labour. We need to have a kind of a, a, kind of a hotbed of ideas and debate around a, what the country would look like together with Labour in order to make sure that people can are convinced that it can work. And how do you build confidence in that when you yourself have decided to stand down as leader? Because I'll still be there. Um, I think after 10 years, you, you've got to recognise that maybe it's time for somebody else to have um, a, a, a go at leading the party. Um, and I have got confidence, which is why I'm still actively involved in politics. I mean, I've not shut up within the last week, and, and I'll keep on talking and debating and discussing. Um, it's just the particular role of leadership, I think, is for somebody else just now. Now, I'll play a leading role, I hope, um, under the successor, um, because I am passionate about making sure that this country can turn back from the twin nationalisms and look for something that's more progressive. I mean, I think, you know, Scotland being Scotland, you and I were talking as I put the bins out from the office the other week, and you were talking to me about that working with uh, Anna Sawa, uh, the leader of the Labour Party in Scotland, about that progressive alternative. How, how formal do you think you can make that, given your experiences of the past uh, of coalitions? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody... And the Liberal Democrats will be conscious about um, coalitions and always a bit nervous about what that would be because of our pretty terrible experience through through the five years with the Conservatives. Um, so, but that, you know, just because it wasn't good for the party in those five years and beyond, it's had a significant impact upon us, um, doesn't mean that, you know, any kind of working in partnership should be ruled out. I mean, as Liberal Democrats, we are... You know, because we're in favour of proportional representation, in some ways, it's it's inbuilt 
into our architecture that we work together in partnership where we can agree. So I would be in favour of working in partnership. That doesn't mean coalitions. It doesn't mean pacts. It doesn't mean formal arrangements. In some ways, that misses the point. Um, What the point here is, is to show that there is a critical mass of people and energy and ideas that can provide a challenge to the twin nationalisms. Now, you know, I would I would hope they could in a longer term work in partnership. But the idea really is about creating an energy and a momentum. That's the purpose um, of doing that. And I think Labour, you know, for the first time for you know probably ever within, I mean, they're slowly coming to terms with the fact that they're getting torn between two extremes. We've been used to this for decades. You're know, having to to fight off those similar pressures between. Labour and the Conservatives across the UK. It's quite new for Labour. And I, I hope that we can work with them to, to help solve the problem um, of people being forced to the extremes. I mean, I, there's lots of people who are Liberal Democrats, who are probably Labour supporters, who end up voting Tory or the SNP. Now, we need to give them the confidence that it's worth it. Um, and Labour, I hope, and I'm sure they are, because Anis is quite refreshing, in his approach to leadership. I'm sure they're grappling with that issue right now. It's interesting, isn't it, when you look at our parliament, Holyrood, um, meant to be a parliament where you wouldn't have majority rule. And what you're getting is, you know, if the SNP do go into any kind of formal uh, agreement with the Greens, that we are actually still working towards having majority parties or majority blocks working against each other. Yeah, and I, and I think that's partly because the Westminster system, which still dominates our politics overall, is is built around that belief. Um, so I think there will always be a desire to have an absolute majority rather than do what they did between 2007 and 11. I thought pretty successfully um, of just working as a minority administration and trying to do deals between various different parties at different times, often more the Conservatives than the Conservatives would like to admit. But um, there was a um, there was an attempt, you know, particularly Bruce Crawford, I thought, who was excellent at that kind of relationship building, um, I think managed to capture. I think um, there is still, though, the pressure to get towards majorities because it's, it's easier just to have the discussion within your own party or your own coalition rather than having to worry about every other party in the parliament who, you know, have got a variety of different motivations at different times. So I I think that's disappointing, but I think as long as we have a proportional system at Westminster, it will be inbuilt into our thinking that we need to have an absolute majority. What would your fear be of a formal agreement between the SNP and the Greens? Um... I don't think the SNP know what they're letting themselves in for. Um, I. What do you mean? <laughs> well, they've got some some odd views in the Green Party, and they're they're not particularly liberal. Um, I, I think. Uh, what like? Well, I mean, we've we before haven't we? We've talked about the whole um, gender recognition stuff. I mean, I. You know, our party policy is very much in favour of, of trans rights. Um, but the way we approach it is much more kind of open and listening and debating and discussing and being respectful of opposing views. But you don't get that sense within the Green Party that there's that basic, you know, approach of tolerance and listening um, and I think that's quite a different culture change from um, what I think the SNP try to achieve so I think that would be a challenge I think you know on the old North Sea oil which you know I'm in favour of moving away from you know carbon based fuels but you've just got to reduce the demand rather than cutting off the supply because cutting off the supply doesn't really make that much difference so the idea that you you shouldn't try to um, you know, make sure that the North Sea is viable as a whole because it's all one big integrated uh, organisation where, you know, the finances sometimes are quite precarious because of the price of oil. Um, 
you've actually got to have a plan about transition that's much more sensible rather than just cutting things off. Um, so I think that kind of very black and white approach that comes from the Greens, I think will pose a real challenge to the to the SNP who, by their essence, are pragmatic because for them all that ultimately matters is that they achieve uh, the whole, the independence in which they, can, they think they can build a, a better country. Um, so, you know, that that kind of black and white ideological approach of the Greens, I think will, will really clash with the more pragmatic sense on domestic policy of the SNP. So I, I think they'll need to be careful about how they progress with the relationship with the, with the Greens. It's quite interesting, isn't it, just uh, to touch again on that, what you said there about the GRA issue. Um, I think the kind of exposure that the Greens got with Andy Whiteman standing down from the Greens and saying that they weren't very liberal and that there wasn't the opportunity to debate was quite shocking to a lot of people that would have assumed the Greens would have been one place where you could, you know, really express opinions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't necessarily, you know, agree with everything that Andy was saying in the end, um, you know, but actually he's a very intelligent guy um, and his style of politics is very much based on evidence and, and you know, respectful debate. And I thought the way that ultimately he was treated was not what, I thought we'd come from the Greens, but it does reveal a kind of a, just a different approach to, you know, everything is very much, um, you know, ideological, uh, very clear about what they think the market wants. And you wouldn't think that the the Greens would be interested in that kind of marketization of politics, but that's exactly what they do. Um, so I, I think there's a... Um, it's it's opened people's eyes to what the Greens are like. And I, as I say, I think that kind of approach will be quite difficult for, for Nicola and the SNP, who tend to be much more pragmatic and will, will actually move to where the centre of public opinion is rather than necessarily um, being stuck on one ideological position other than on independence, obviously. But um, they are quite pragmatic in other senses. We'll come back to... Um the kind of toxicity that was around at the end of the last session. But I, just to move away from that whole kind of GRA debate, I just wanted to ask you how you felt about Patrick Harvey basically saying that there were transphobes in the parliament. Yeah, he, he was wrong. Um, I think he was referring to people like Joanne Lamont, and Joanne's not that. Um, Joanne's very respectful um, and is not a transphobe. And so that's why, just that, I mean, it's a word that's thrown around far too readily. Um, in some ways, it's, yeah, it's just, there's just too much use of it. And, it. and it actually shuts down debate. It shuts down discussion. It shuts down an understanding of um, what the real concerns are. Because um, I, I do have concerns about, um, you know, how women feel about, you know, um, about safe spaces and about the response and the provision of services. I, I think all of that is important. Um, and I happen to disagree fundamentally at the end um, of that process, but I I want to make sure that we can find a pragmatic way of dealing with their concerns that ultimately keeps people safe and people feel that they've got their rights respected. That's ultimately what I want, but I'm... You know, I uh, I just regret that the way that the the whole issue has been been handled, and therefore casting people as transphobes isn't helpful. Let's move away from that because I think there's probably a whole new podcast in that again. Yeah. But I mean, I, one of the things I wanted to ask you is why stand down as leader, you know, now rather than almost immediately after the election? What kind of thought process did you have to go through to get to that point? Because you must have felt pretty sore I mean you've done so well personally and uh, as had Alex and Liam um what made you decide right now I will go now um I, I'm actually quite a patient person impatient in some ways but patient in other ways I want to just 
there's a lot of emotion during an election campaign. You're very tired. And it's the worst time, you know, to make a big strategic decision about what you're going to do next. So although I had thoughts immediately after the election, I just decided to wait. And I turned the issues up and down over and over again and then just finally concluded that um, it was the, the right decision. Um, and, you know, it was never absolutely clear what I should do. I mean, some... I mean, in some bits of my head, I say, well, why on earth did you give up? Um, because I do enjoy the thrill of uh, election campaigns and debate and crafting positions and negotiating with other parties about what to do next. And all those things I, I find fascinating. I'm hoping, hopefully I'll still do those things. Um, but in the end, I decided that um, I couldn't really fight the next election. And if I wasn't going to fight the next election... It was only a matter of time as to when uh, I would go. And because the general election is, what, maybe as early as 18 months away, I suppose it could be even earlier, it would be fair to allow my successor to get bedded in and understand and develop their strategy and plans. Um, so in the end, I, I just decided that now was the moment to do it. But I just took time to think about it uh, and, you know, Whose counsel did you take on it, Willie? You know, I who... have lot. I have lots of. Yes, yeah, sorry. Pretend friends. No, I've got. Um, you, you actually. Uh, well, I've got. I've got a lot of good friends in the party who, who I discuss things with, um, and um, and then it's just assessing people's reactions to different things that you do so it's just observing generally because sometimes it's the advice that you get is unintentional you know when you do a particular thing there was one moment where you know at a strategy session i did um with party members where the same person had raised the same issue again um and normally i'm incredibly patient with them and I go through and I try and explain. and But I just cut them off. And I thought, I'm losing patience here. And when you get to that stage with party members, because I always like to be, you know, because they're all volunteers and they deserve to be treated. And I wasn't rude to them, but I just, uh, I was losing a bit of patience because the person hadn't really adapted the argument over the years uh, to reflect the current circumstances. And, they hadn't really considered the impact of their position on um, what the voters would think and who it would attract and so on. So I just thought, right, that's another. So it's little things like that, not big, but it's just little things like that mm. just give you an indication about where you should go next. So I just like to observe rather than make instant decisions. God, I hope our chat at the bins didn't affect <laughs> Oh, no, it would have. Yeah, no, no, it would have. Yeah, absolutely. No, it, it, all these... Because it, it was a good discussion we had at the bins. Um, it was yeah. we, 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 <laughs> we went. We there went was no through. message in that. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't heading for the scrap heap. Um, uh, no. Yeah. So the, so yeah, all these discussions are really important and just shaping how you respond. But as I say, I could have carried on. I felt you know I was under no pressure to go. Um, I. Um, and you know, equally, you know, I could have carried on with it, but um, but I just decided it was, you know, the the right time. Doesn't mean my political career is over by any means, and I'm um, just as enthusiastic as ever about um, making sure the Lib Dems win. But sometimes self awareness is important. When I was chatting to other uh, politicians at the bins and we were talking about, um, we're playing our fantasy presiding officer game, which, you know, very sadly we all do. There was, your name was mentioned quite a lot about the next presiding officer. Didn't you fancy that? Um, did you see my response to the Royal Yacht at the, <laughs> in the last yeah. debate? So perhaps, <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have gone down I'm, terribly well, Your Majesty. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a... <laughs> Yeah, see, I'm not a pomp and ceremony guy, really. Um, you know, it, it's uh, not now. I just don't think it's the. It wasn't the right thing for me. I never really felt. Uh, I, I think people would find it hard as well for 
um, you know, somebody who had been, you know, quite ag- quite aggressive and argumentative towards the first minister, um, to then take on the kind of neutral position. I think people would find it difficult to believe that I could be neutral. And um, so, yeah, so it wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. Well, on the pomp and ceremony, I mean, the House of Lords appears to be a rest home for former Lib Dem leaders. Is, <laughs> is that where you're next headed, do you think? I think there's far too many Liberal Democrats in the House of Lords. I think everybody resents how many Liberal Democrats are in the House of Lords. Um, no, it's not not me either. No, I'm, I like the Scottish Parliament. It's a good place. I mean, I, I liked Westminster. It was um, different. Um, but the, the Scottish Parliament has got all the issues I really, really care about, mental health and early years education and schooling, um, you know, the economic aspects, the economic development aspects I've always been really interested in. All of that is uh, is all in the Scottish Parliament. And um, so it's, it's like a wee sweetie shop. You get to pick all the best issues that to talk about. So, yeah, no, I, I like um, I like the Scottish Parliament. I mean, you're, you're in a kind of unique place, really, because you've served both at Westminster, as you mentioned, and Holyrood, and as an advisor to two Secretaries of State for Scotland. So from your perspective, I, this may be a bit rhetorical, given what you've just said, but where are Scotland's best interests served? Um, I think in both places, genuinely. I, I do have concerns about how Westminster operates and how sometimes the governments are disconnected from um, from Scotland. Because a lot of English-based uh, ministers find it difficult to understand the politics of Scotland. So a lot of them tend not to get immersed in it. Uh, and that needs to change. Um, some, of them are, some of them are really good. Actually, I think, you know, Michael Gove does, you know, obviously understand Scotland and he, and he handles it. You know, I don't necessarily agree with what he's saying, but he handles it quite well. He's not afraid of it. Um, you know, uh, you know, inevitably the Scottish ministers, the particular Liberal Democrats in the coalition understood Scotland and weren't afraid of it. Ed Davey, actually, he was very good when he came up as energy minister, um, Secretary of State, because he, he, again, did his homework and prepared for it. But too many of them blunder up um, or stay away and actually they need to immerse themselves more in you know the Scottish political scene so they understand it and can reflect it properly within government and in the parliament um, so that's really important that that happens and you know some of the the new funding the kind of leveling up type funding that's available might help them understand it a little bit better um, but I think Westminster can be a place that that really does represent Scotland well. Um, it's it's got the ability to do that. Actually, Scotland probably doesn't really appreciate how much the issues that are relevant to Scotland dominate uh, at Westminster. Certainly, when I was there, that was the case. Um, so I I think Westminster's perfectly capable of doing it. But ministers shouldn't be afraid of Scotland. They need to come and engage and debate and discuss, even if it's tough. They need to come. But do you think Boris is a good recruiting sergeant for the SNP? Oh, yeah. God, he's their best. He's their best. It's why the SNP put Boris <laughs> on their adverts during the election campaign. I mean, how dismal and negative can you get by putting another leader on your posters? But that's what they were doing. Um, no, he's, the Conservatives are far from the saviours of the Union. Um, they're the ones that cause an awful lot of the problems for the United Kingdom. Um but, you know, for people in Scotland, just to be clear, um, you know, England is not the Conservative Party and the Conservative Party is not England. Um, um, the, I mean, I lived in Cornwall for uh, seven years, and kind, generous, open, outward-looking people who really cared about their, their neighbour. Um, they were, you know, they were generous people that certainly welcomed me uh, and my family when we moved there. And um, they are great people. And I know from having spent time in various parts of the, the United Kingdom doing various different jobs, um, the characterisation of what England and English voters are like is not the truth. They are not the Conservative Party. 
Um, so therefore, it's really important that you know the progressive voices in the whole of the UK are loud and big and strong, so that you know that people don't just equate the Conservative Party with England because that is not the case. Of course, in Cornwall, you, you also have a movement away to try and break away, but yeah, maybe, 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 maybe that's no coincidence. Maybe in Cornwall, we're never quite, <laughs> never quite that strong, but uh, yeah. <laughs> there was a there was a power for though for you know strong regional authorities with greater power, but there was always a desire to work in partnership, you know, across the the United Kingdom, um, and it's the further you get away from London, the more distant you know that London seems. But that's the real challenge for for Westminster is to fully understand what is there, and that's that reinforces my point from earlier that. You know, that ministers should not be afraid of coming to Scotland, even if it's tough. They should be here and discussing, debating and listening, and too often they don't. You've hinted in other interviews that you might not stay on the full term as an MSP. Am I Have reading I? too oh, much no, into no, that? No, no, that's not true. Um, no, 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 I'm staying. No, I'm staying. God, you're not getting rid of me. Um, Bad no, journalists. <laughs> no, that, that's, that, I don't know if I ever said that. Um, no, no, I'm definitely staying. Um, I think I was uh, reading, it was probably the... Good. Right. You'll be there the full term. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's, it is a, um, a, as um, Harry Kane say, it's a, it's a, what's it he says, it's a, it's a dream of a lifetime or something like that. I don't know. I don't watch <laughs> Just say, he does it every single time. Yeah. Or, or it's a million and one percent. <laughs> no, I'm staying. I'm staying. I- <laughs> Just on a kind of more general observation about politicians, really. I mean, I I don't know how you put yourself up for this kind of um, ups and downs, if you like, and allowing the public to decide on your future. You obviously lost your seat in 2010 as an MP. What do you learn personally when that kind of thing happens? Yeah, uh, 2010 hit me harder than anything. Um, I had probably become emotionally attached to Dunfermline and West Fife more than I should have become. Um, I, I put in an, an enormous shift to try and hold that seat um, and just was broken when when I lost it. Um, it's probably, I've taken that harder than any other um, election. Um, so, I've, I've, you know, what it taught me was about, you know, I, I you know, care deeply about the people um, I I represent and I do you know some of it is pretty harrowing. Um, you know some of the cases that you've got. And there was a man the other day who has he had um fifty dislocations a day in his joints, so he's whether it's his hips or his shoulders or whatever, and every time he's in real pain. Every time it happens, and you know you feel a personal responsibility towards them to try and, you know, help them uh, with their cases. But I think Dunfermline probably made me probably just put up a little bit of a shield in there to make sure I didn't get so emotionally attached again. Um, now, if I lost North East Fife, I'm sure I'd be devastated. Um, but it's a, it's a slightly different kind of feeling now. Um, so, yeah, no, I was broken after 2010. I just couldn't believe that I'd lost... Uh, after the huge effort they would put in, so so yeah, no, it's quite you know getting defeated at election campaigns is hard. I think I would probably take it better now, but um, but certainly in two thousand and ten it was tough. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we've had uh, Anas Sarwa as well talk about that about how actually the losing of a seat helped make him a better politician. Yeah, yeah, I think it probably does because you just understand what life is like once you lose and how you pick yourself up again and and move on. Um, and I'm sure Anis had that as well. Um, I think, uh, no, it can be really tough. And and it's why I think it's, you know, when, when Nicola was going through all that, the inquisition over the whole Alex Salmond issue, um, I tried, we really tried hard to get... Um, you know, to, to remove the kind of politics and actually look at the 
the actual facts and the the judgments involved. And there's some things that are still outstanding on it. Um, but I thought it got particularly ugly because it was quite clear what the Conservatives were just trying to do. They were just trying to take down Nicola irrespective of, of the issues. And I think for the well-being of politics as a whole, we've got to try and live by the rules. Um, and if an, you know, an independent investigator makes a judgment that the... You know, a respected independent investigator made a judgment that she hadn't broken the ministerial code. You need to go with that. You can't just ignore it just because it doesn't suit our political objectives. Um, now, I still had a problem with somebody with inside the government releasing the names of, um, you know, some of the, the victims to Alex Salmonside. I have a real problem with that. And I, um, I think it may be getting solved now, but nevertheless... You know, it was a genuine issue that I still had a concern about that wasn't properly addressed by the independent investigator. But nevertheless, you've got to go. With, How do you think it's being solved? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going into detail, but um, I just I think I know it's getting solved. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, so I okay. um, I have so you you've got to actually try and you know first of all listen to what the proper reasonable judgment of the public is. And also, um, you've got to make sure that you um, you live by a set of rules that you would want to be judged by as well. Otherwise, you've got a race to the bottom. Um, and I got a lot of criticism when I, I we decided to abstain on that final vote in the last parliament. But for me, it was really important um, to signify a, a move away from the kind of the bitterness of the last ten years. In, in Scottish politics, that you actually look at things on the facts um, and on reasonable judgment rather than just on what the political objective was. Like, and I mean, I guess on that, Willie, I'm, I'm just back from London. And it, the question that I'm always being asked is, uh, you know, how has Scotland get, got to the point that it's got to with the SNP uh, hegemony, I guess, over everything, really? And I know you weren't, you were an MP in 2007, but I guess that unanswered question about why, when Alex Salmond only had one by one seat and it was still a minority, why did the Lib Dems and Labour not go into coalition again and say, well, we'll just run again as a coalition? Yeah, I remember because that Anne, was the start of it. I remember Anne McGuire. You remember Anne McGuire, the MP for, for Stirling? Yeah. Um, I remember having a discussion. I can't remember when it was. Um, but... It was about the fact that she viewed the had a responsibility to hold on to power no matter what the circumstances. That you would cobble together deals in order to to keep your party in power, and I, I actually have a different view, which is you've actually got to listen to the to the kind of the shifts in public opinion, um, and and reflect that. Um, so it's not just about the simple numbers, it's about the mood of the country. Um, and the mood of the country was clearly that people were tiring of the Lib Lab coalition. There was no doubt about that. Um, and so therefore, you had to reflect that. So cobbling together a deal with the Labour Party to stop, I mean, the numbers still wouldn't work, but I mean, it would have potentially worked. Um, but you still have to do deals with other parties in order to make it work. Um, but I just happen to be old-fashioned that way. You've just got to listen to the public um, rather than always cobbling together deals to try and, you know, almost thwart that that mood and that that uh, momentum. So that that's just that happened to be my my but, view. So I think they were right to to not do it. But when you look at it, and if you were writing the kind of political history of Scotland, obviously the 2007 win or the decision by the SNP to go ahead with a minority government began what we now have. And I mean, I remember that time where both Labour and Lib Dem politicians were saying to me, Ach, the SNP, it won't last the session. Yeah. And I just think, I wonder if that was the mistake, a belief that it was a blip in the natural politics of Scotland and, and it would all go back to normal. Yeah, I think that that's probably fair. Um, I, I think there was, I mean, when I came in as leader in 2011, there was a almost a, a pose the SNP for its own sake 
attitude from Labour and ourselves to a certain extent, and I tried to change that, um, of where you are actually trying to connect with the public mood a little bit more rather than just opposing the government no matter what they said. So minimum pricing on alcohol was a classic one of that where, you know, I actually thought it was a good policy. It dealt with a major problem that, you know, Scotland was facing and I think it's proven to have worked uh, pretty well. Um, So I I changed the view um, at that point and um, it wasn't universally popular within in the party for doing that. But I think it was important to signal something um, that we were that we were we were changing. I think the uh, the SNP had managed to capture the public mood quite effectively and were lucky with their opponents uh, in many ways. Um, so I think it, how we handled them being in power was probably um, you know a bigger lesson rather than decision to allow them to be in power. I think the Conservatives are probably reflecting quite a bit about how much they assisted the SNP to be a stable government between 2007 and 11. Um, and if they were fully open about that with their voters now, not, ma- not as many people might vote for them, um, because they did allow Alex Salmon to say that he had done the bad. Now, the reason why he was able to say that was because the Conservatives had propped him up repeatedly Um over those those four years, in order simply to do down the Labour Party, I know that that was their strategy. They wanted to squeeze the Labour Party out of Scottish politics, and they saw help in the SNP as part of achieving that. Now, I, I think that was a, a, a the decision that was wrong for them. It gave the SNP credibility um, and allowed them to go on to further successes. But a lot of that was the the Conservative Party. So it's it's. Um, it's yeah, making sure right. that you need to be careful about um, how you make these decisions. But certainly there were lessons from that period. No. I thought you were going to say you need to be careful about the decisions who you jump into bed with. Oh, no, <laughs> Politically, no, but we won't go there. You, you, don't, you don't have to say that to me. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> I, don't. <laughs> I um Obviously, we mean metaphorically. Um <laughs> Just in terms of Nicola Sturge, because there's so much we could talk about in terms of the referendum and everything else, but um, I'm conscious that we, we there is just we could talk for ages. In terms of 2016 and Nicola as First Minister, she talked about doing politics differently. Have you seen much evidence of that? Um, she's quite, she fluctuates quite a bit. Um, you know, sometimes, I mean, at the very beginning, remember, in the 2015 election, she was striding the national stage, um, dominating the election campaign. You know, people in England were saying how much they liked her and wished they could have her down south. And then she misjudged it post-Brexit and overcooked the independence calls and was suddenly hated by large numbers of people. Um, and then, you know, through the pandemic, she's recovered um, her reputation. So, it kind of it's quite volatile in terms of being open. Um, I find her reasonably open, but you know I've never had a direct phone call with her um, in any meaningful way. I mean, she'll phone me out of respect on certain things, um, but I've never had a meaningful proper. Well, that's quite discussion. what you mean. You've never had a, yeah. Yeah, no, it's just that, I mean, she'll phone me up. What, you always feel it's... Well, yeah, so she'll do what she thinks is right. And, and, you know, it's respectful. It's proper respectful. And so maybe after a disaster, she'll phone up and say, look, this is what's happening. But in terms of, you know, having a discussion about a particular problematic issue and being open about it, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't engage in that. Now, I've had repeated discussions with lots of our ministers. So Jean Freeman and I got on very well, Kate Forbes, Fiona Hislop, uh, Michael Matheson, um, and we would openly discuss and go through the issue and I would offer solutions and it was a meaningful discussion. I can't really say that I've had that. It all feels a bit just a formality rather than a proper engagement Um now, I mean, she does do, you know, she does, you know, regular briefings for the leaders, which is quite helpful. Um, but you don't get the sense that there's a proper debate about it. It's just she says something and we say something and then we all move on. 
Um, so it's a different kind of thing. So it, you know, I'm not saying that she doesn't listen to us, but it's um, it's not the same kind of engagement that you get with a lot of her ministers who have to say through the pandemic, I enjoyed working with. Um, it was quite um, rewarding. But, you know, there's no doubt that Nicola is talented as well, incredibly talented, and I just don't know how resolute, you, you know, I don't know how she's managed to be so resolute through the pandemic. Um, there's no doubt about that. So, you know, I've got a lot of time for her. I think she's, she's very able. Um, but, uh, you know, she's not always open as uh, as I would want it to be. Well, do you think she's just guarded? Yeah, I'm not sure she trusts many people. I don't think she trusts. I think she probably trusts John Swinney. Uh, well, she will trust John Swinney. Um not sure how many others she probably opens up and has a proper discussion with. I don't get the sense. So, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. But it, it's, you would have thought after all these years I would have a better understanding of her. But um, it's been a bit, uh, a bit distant at times, whereas other ministers have been very open. It's interesting, really, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people feel perhaps that same thing, that who is Nicola Sturgeon, really? I mean, there is, there's certainly, I mean, I've talked about this before, so it's not new, but there are two voices in in our head. Um, there's the kind of the pragmatic public servant who wants to do the right thing for the nation, um, who in a period of crisis, and never, you know, like we've never seen before, she steps up and does the right thing and daily, you know, she feels a responsibility to communicate clearly. Um, and, and she delivers that and caution which we support you know is is evident throughout that time and even though she's made mistakes you know she she doesn't get crushed by those mistakes um but you know so that there's that side of her but then there's the what i would call the crazy nationalist side that just takes over every so often and did after the brexit vote um and does other periods as well and you know, I think she has this constant battle in her head, just like there's a battle in the party over these things about what the right thing to do is. And, you know, I think uh, she's a much more successful, pragmatic politician who is the public servant than she is the radical nationalist. And I think that's why quite a lot of people in her party are a bit frustrated about the, the pace of progress on independence. But you know, she does go along with them um, quite a lot, and that's when she makes, I think, the mistakes. Um, so it's, I think, there's two voices in her head, just like there's you know, battles within the party. Do you think it suits her and her personality, perhaps, then that there may not be a referendum anytime soon? Yeah, I mean, if she saw there was an opportunity, she would take it. Um, you know, she would really push it home, and I, and I think she will push it hard, even if there isn't a referendum. She won't want a referendum unless she can win, obviously, um, because it would put it back for quite a period of time. She obviously believes that she can win. I don't think she's right, but um, she obviously believes she can win, but I think she's cautious enough not to be pushing it or not to have it or agree to it um, when uh, she's not absolutely sure of winning. I mean, you, know, you would have thought with Boris Johnson in charge, um, with the handling of the pandemic reasonably well, although there were some quite significant mistakes over care homes and other things, but nevertheless, the public view is that she's handled it well. Um, and, um, you know, with the whole Brexit situation, you would have thought that she would be romping it in the opinion polls on independence, but she's not. So what does it take to get it above, comfortably above that 50%? I'm just not sure what it is. If these things don't make the difference, what will? Do you think there will be a second independence referendum this session? No, I don't think there will be. I don't think there will be. I can't. I can't see what the. I, see, see, during the election, remember she pivoted away from pushing for the uh, referendum immediately because remember our acolytes were saying it was going to be all we within the year. And she said then, you know, the end of the first half, which in itself is quite confusing for people to understand exactly what that means. But nevertheless, then she pushed it back even further to say it won't be until the pandemic is over. Now, I think the virus will be with us for another thousand years. 
um, does that mean we're way that old? But you know, she created this impression that she had punted it off into the distance. Now, um, so that's what the mandate is, because I could feel it on the doorsteps. You know, she was losing support until she said, "No, we're going to wait until the pandemic's over," and then it stopped, and she was able to shore up her support again. You can feel it drifting back to her. So um, I think um, she knows that the mandate isn't clean and she'll have to follow public opinion. And I think after the period we've been through with this pandemic that keeps on giving us unexpected events, I think, uh, and Brexit and independence debates and the recession before that, I think people have just had enough. So I think the, I think she'll find if she's following the public mood, she won't be able to push for it. Now, that doesn't mean she won't push for it. But if she does, I think she'll misjudge public opinion again. And that's when she'll suffer at the polls. And just going back to your leadership then, is uh, is Alex Cole Hamilton your natural successor? Um, leaders always avoid these questions. <laughs> <laughs> but you always ask them. <laughs> for, for, former leaders always avoid these questions because... You can be sure the Liberal Democrats, who can be contrary at times, um, they um, they don't appreciate former leaders telling them who their next leader should be. So I am going to be very good and resist. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, on a more serious note, everybody is going to miss your photo opportunities. <laughs> and my particular favourite was the one where you were being interviewed and the pigs were getting a bit intimate behind you. I just... Uh, <laughs> Wondered what what what's been your favourite photo op? Well, actually, I um, I've had great fun with lots of different ones. Um, I like the DeLorean uh, photo op down at the, the Queen's Ferry Crossing down at Port Edgar, um, where one of the photographers shouts out um, just before we're about to start. He says, eh, Willie, I've got a smoke bomb in my pocket. Would you mind if I set it off, he says. <laughs> so the photographers were a big part of the experience. And I what I learned is not to be afraid of them, but to work with them. Because they want me, you know, to be on, on the in the papers in a way that I want to do it again. So if I'm humiliated, they'll just get no more pictures. So they are, I mean, I've made one or two mistakes, which I wish I hadn't done, but out of the many that I did, um, you know, I'm generally satisfied with, with most of them. And, and the reason why you, why you do them is really quite simple. Um, politicians, I know it's difficult for us in the political world to accept, but politicians are viewed as a bit stuffy who talk about a different language. Um, and if just one person comes up to you as a result of taking a bit of a zany picture and talks to you about the issue and the message they were trying to send that day, then that's worth it. Um, It breaks down the barriers with with people and it gave me the opportunity to talk about the things I care about and to attract more um, supporters as a result. So I was always very serious about my politics and always will be, but having a bit of fun in the process to break down that barrier between the public and politicians, I think, was really important. Um, but I love the Rams, wrestling Rams. Um, water skiing <laughs> Water skiing was the most dangerous one because it required an element of skill, which all the other photo ops didn't. And I had never done water skiing in my life before. And there was a real danger the whole thing was going to end in failure. But I had managed... Uh, after about 10 minutes training around the other side of the lock, I managed to pick it up reasonably quickly. Um, so that was the most dangerous one, but um, all of them were great fun. And I've, I just, uh, there's my, my friends who are the photographers, um, I'm just really grateful for because they helped me with all of that. It helped them, but um, they're really good, fun people who would always give me good advice, sound advice, actually a lot of sound political advice as well. Um, so I'll miss the photographers uh, as much as I'll miss the uh, the photos. And I suppose there's nothing like being upstaged by a couple of pigs having sex behind you. Is there? <laughs> and that was that was the only one. It wasn't intentional. <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't make that one up. And actually, we did we did think. If I'm allowed to, am I allowed to swear? Am I allowed to swear? Yeah. We, we, we did we did 
we did think that the headline might be Lib Dem campaign fucked. And that was the that was the real danger <laughs> of that photo. But actually it turned out that people weren't laughing at me, they were laughing with me. Um, and it turned out to be a great success, which Phil Sim from the BBC probably didn't realise how successful it was going to be from his discovery when he went back to the studios. So, um, so yeah, all these things were great. And I, uh, I, I've, I, I will have lots of great memories and, and they've all been captured, or most of them have been by Neil Slorens, the, the great cartoonist who... Um, he and I have built up a good relationship. Good, right, Willie? That's uh, brilliant. <laughs> I think we could we could probably talk all day, so we'll stop yeah. there. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, that's good. As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends, because everybody has an interest in politics.